You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Hello, podcast listeners. This is Alex Rosenberg from Real Vision back on your podcast feed with a conversation between Russell Clark and Roger Hurst. We're going to be doing this over the next few weeks, giving you audio versions of videos that previously appeared on Real Vision. And this one is an interesting one. Russell Clark joined us as part of our Recession Watch series where we heard a lot of people talk about the potential odds of recession and what to do about it now. And in this conversation... Russell sits down with Roger and explains to him why he sees fragility in the global economy, why China could devalue its currency, and why that devaluation could be sort of a black swan event that causes a whole string of knock-on effects that lead to global economic instability, recession, perhaps global financial crisis. So the two of them talk about it in this conversation, which was recorded on July 11th. And since then, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, has actually come more into the conversation as China devalued not to the nine level that Russell mentions, but at least past seven renminbi to the US dollar. And that did indeed have a lot of knock-on effects to cause a lot of shakiness in global markets. We haven't seen everything that Russell says is coming yet. But I think it's very important for you to listen to this conversation to get a better understanding for why people are so interested in where China's currency is going. So with that, please enjoy this full conversation between Roger Hurst and Russell Clark. Russell, welcome back again to Real Vision. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me. We're talking about um, China within the context of recession, because we're in recession week. Now, you've been looking at China for a long time. You've been looking at the slowdown in China for a long time. Could you put it in context how long that slowdown has been going on, um, how deep it is compared to the sort of the headline data that no one trusts, and what you're looking at to sort of generate that view on China's current position, its effectively growth momentum? So China is uh, China is always a slightly tricky market because the uh, the data and also a lot of the uh, financial markets are not as sophisticated as they are in uh, particularly in the U.S. And so you sort of have to sort of tease data out a little bit. So to give context to the China story at the moment, um, you know, if you go back to I think the sort of fourteen, fifteen, sixteen periods where fears of China were at a peak, what you saw was um, leading up into that slowdown was you started to see problems in its corporate debt market. Um, and a lot of that was driven by the slowdown in commodities. Uh, so lower oil prices, uh, lower steel prices, lower iron, iron, ore, iron ore prices, and lower, lower coal prices. And yet, just to, to remind people, you know, in the aftermath of the 
a financial crisis, China had gone into sort of wealth management product, P2P lending boom. And a lot of these products were based on getting high yields out of like coal mines and iron ore and steel factories. So as you started to see margins in that industry collapse, credit problems started to emerge in China and they started to become uh, self-feeding, which then created pressure on the currency, which then created depressionary, uh, deflationary pressure through the whole global system. Um, and ultimately, you know, that was what got priced in in early 15 and 16. And then the Chinese authorities responded through two things. One is that they uh, forcibly reduced a lot of capacity in a lot of industries and then did a fiscal push. And so what this did was that for the survivors, it created a huge cash flow, huge profitability, and sort of cauterized the corporate bond problem. So you sort of knew who was going to be the loser and who's going to be the winner. And so uh, you could start getting certainty back into your investing and the way we went. Now, what is unusual in China at the moment is that if you look at uh, markets like the auto market, there's a clear sign of a slowdown um, and, uh, and it's been slowing for a while. If you look at sort of import-export data uh, out of markets like Korea, their exports to China have slowed down massively, down nearly 15 to 20% year on year. The weird thing is that if you then look at things like uh, Chinese steel production have actually accelerated to be up 10% year on year. And so what you can see is that the external environment, probably driven by uh, tariffs and trade barriers being erected uh, out of the Trump administration, has certainly slowed growth in China. And at the same problem, the Chinese, at the same time, the Chinese authorities have responded to that through domestic stimula- stimulation. So you see iron ore, steel production is at very high levels, uh, and also housing prices have been very, very strong. Um, the problem you've got with that, when you really cut into it, is what you're seeing in, in uh, the Chinese steel market and what you're seeing globally is that uh, is that all of the profits from increasing steel production is going directly to Australian mining corporations. So the margin on cash production in China, even though they've gone to record levels, has actually dropped to zero virtually. And so the stimulus that the Chinese authorities are uh, applying to the economy to counteract slowing trade is actually not feeding through to the domestic economy. As likewise, as with uh, property markets, this has always been an issue for me uh, and I think you saw it in London back in the sort of 15, 16 period. I think you started to see it in Hong Kong. Is that you can keep getting house prices up to create a wealth effect. But at a certain point, it, you get to this, <laughs> this point where people go, well, actually, I have to save so much money to buy a house. I'm not going to save. It almost becomes irrespective, you know, uh, unrelated to their sort of wealth. And in fact, for people who do want to buy a house, they have to save so much money. Uh, and interest rates are so low, it just becomes a sort of pipe dream uh, and actually becomes a negative for the economy. I certainly think that's high house prices. It's definitely a driver of like Brexit votes, for example. I think it's a driver of the unrest we're seeing in Hong Kong at the moment. When you, when you remove the prospect of home ownership from so many young people as negative, I think we're really at that sort of point in China where the traditional stimulus that they've used for the last 10 to 15 years doesn't work. Um, and so then creates all other sort of issues, uh, 
which we're starting to see come to the fore. And how much of that change, do you think, is um, the sort of liquidity injection, the sort of use of credit, 14 15% of GDP annually pretty much for a yeah. long time. Um, how much of this slowdown is, is a sort of um, a slowdown that's out of their control versus a slowdown that's intentional? They've always talked about moving away from the growth at any cost model to something which is more domestic. They may be forced into that because of other external issues. But some of these slowdowns that we're seeing, could that be attributed to a change in direction and a redirection of the internal liquidity away from just the growth model towards maybe shoring up some of these sort of excess excesses within business. And therefore, what we're seeing here is not so much necessarily a um, sort of catastrophic slowdown in China, but a slowdown in China and a redirection in China that has a massive impact on the rest of the world that got reliant on this one model sort of pre-2018. So what's interesting with China, and it's uh, something we've seen replicated across the entire world, is that when growth is good, uh, what we've tried, what we've seen is uh, central banks or governments uh, try and wean us off this QE model, right? Um, or this sort of un- unlimited credit to try and get growth going. Same was in China. They uh, cracked crack down on P2P lending. They tried to reduce uh, steel production to rebalance. Because, you know, if you want to be a modern economy, your steel industry should be shrinking, not growing. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know it's always harsh for people who worked in coal mines or steel factories, but actually uh, modern economies are not built on the back of endless steel production growth. Uh, and the problem is, is what because we have so much credit around, that whenever uh, any government or central bank has looked to move away from credit stimula- uh, stimulation, uh, you've almost seen, always see a big slowdown and lower asset prices about six months to a year later. You know, they realized excessive steel production was bad, that excessive house speculation was bad, um, and P2P lending was bad. So they did crack down P2P lending, but when you look at, like, debt to GDP, which was beginning to flatline for a couple of years, it started to accelerate up again. And this has basically been the model of growth for the last 15 to 20 years, is that, um, you know, growth at any costs, regardless of any long-term consequences... The model of that is a Japanese experience, and it just doesn't work. Uh, there are, you know, there are differences in different countries, but it just doesn't work in my experience. And with China, I mean, is there a sense because we sort of, uh, I don't know how many China bears has been over the time, and it's always a sort of feeling that you know they have this um, excess in pretty much every area. But I guess two of the things they've been able to not so much control, but they've always worried about is obviously the FX reserves, as long as that's stable, which yeah. it has been at three trillion for a while. And inflation is the other one in a semi-sort of closed economy. If you're stuffing in liquidity, you worry about inflation, but there's been no inflation. So can't China, in a way, continue to transition, if we want to call it that, stuff in loads of liquidity as long as they keep one eye on that inflation figure, as long as inflation is relatively static and they're not pushing yields down so low that it causes more money to want to get out of the country? Yeah. Aren't they going to confound us? Um, And so it goes back to a sort of scenario where China, within the global system, is a big worry because it's changing. And we're feeling that. You can see it in Germany. You can see it in Taiwan. Yeah. But China itself might sort of manage its way through this. What is it that's sort of in there that's kind of, you know, what worries you? Is it stuff that you can see in some of the data or is it some of the externalities? Because you've seen a few yeah. um, some currency pairs, things like that, where you're going, there's clearly some problems here. Now, you know, the numbers, the lead indicators on China back in the 14-15 period got very, very weak. Uh, and the market was still believing in the China story. Market's belief in China story evaporated through you know, late 15, 
early 16, and then the Chinese changed policy, a number of indicators turned positive again. Now what's happened this year, uh, probably around when Raul got very, very bearish, was you start to see strange movements in the currency markets, which is always what I like to keep a close eye on. So one of the, you know, you've had a lot of very strange moves. So, uh, you know, starting with the more interesting, more obvious ones, uh, probably for most of your viewers, is the Australian dollar has continued to be weak even as uh, iron ore prices have gone to five-year highs. So Australia is now running like the largest current account surplus ever, which historically is a very bullish signal. Um, and yet the Aussie dollar continues to be weak. I think in a way because it's a lead indicator on what RMB, the RMB is doing. And when you look into the guts of like iron ore and the steel industry, what you're seeing is almost the Aussie dollar is following steel prices, which are generally falling more than iron ore prices, which are going up. Uh, which makes sense to me because uh, so the market is looking through the current strength in iron ore and going, you know what? Actually, it's not real. Uh, it's a supply issue, but it's not. It's not being driven by demand. And when something's not driven by demand, it's very hard to be bullish on it because supply issues get resolved. And people, I think, at the beginning of the year, everyone sort of looked at that massive injection and and reflation was the big story in January. Everyone went, oh, China's doing it again. Yeah. And as you said, you, you know, the Aussie dollar didn't really react to it, not like 2016. No. Mining stocks didn't. And if you look at things like copper, it's sitting on this sort of you know, quite a, a technical level, a big neckline. It looks like it's going to break down. So Absolutely. the market's kind of believing copper, not iron ore. And so, you know, what, what do you think was, what was it that was wrong about the reflation story? Because everyone looked at that liquidity and positioned for reductive 2016 and we didn't get anything close to it. Yeah, look, you know, like I said, I think, uh, so if you, if you in classic emerging markets, uh, so, you know, Turkey is a good example, right? You know, like if you push through liquidity and people don't believe in the economy, liquidity just goes out the other side. So you start getting currency depreciation and which creates more inflation, but it's deflationary for your trade partners. Does that make sense? Even though Turkey has been putting liquidity into the system, it doesn't actually benefit anyone. It just currency weakness um and in a way i think that's what if you look at what the aussie dollar is doing and so the other currencies are tightly traded with the renminbi which is korean one and taiwan dollar have both suddenly been weakening um you gain the signal that the money is just flowing out which makes sense because you know you have a very different uh attitude towards trade out of the u.s uh much more willing to use tariffs you had some very um, a very interesting trade policy out of Japan with Korea. I'm not sure if that's been widely followed, but uh, Japanese have suddenly banned the export of some semiconductor materials to Korea uh, as part of like a trade war. Uh, they did it just after the G20, so when people weren't talking about um, uh, But it could be quite a significant issue. Who knows? But you've got a lot of very... So the currencies are saying deflation and the equities are saying inflation and the bond market is saying deflation and so this is the dichotomy you have is that you know which one of those is true um and people you know you talked about currencies there and one of the things that raul talks about is the the seven level on the renminbi um and whether china will or won't not to say devalue but actually let its currency go because that has enormous implications you know the asian dollar index is basically renminbi a bit of hong kong dollar and yeah. that looks like it could break down 
It's related to emerging market equities. So in some ways, the sort of the big arbiter for sort of the global economy uh, or potentially the, the, the touch point for um, something quite nasty happening in the global economy could be if the Chinese go, okay, actually, we are going to let the renminbi go. Yeah. Where, where, what's your view? Because you, you've got some strong views on the renminbi and what they should be doing. Well, look, you know, I think uh, since the financial crisis, China has been the rock around which everything's been built because they've been willing to keep their uh, exchange rate very strong uh, and do huge amounts of fiscal stimulus and uh, push up property prices to act as like a consumption, source of consumption for the world. Um, And the currency was actually very cheap in 2008. And then as the euro and then the yen fell against them and then the emerging market currencies fell against the dollar, and by definition, the renminbi in Hong Kong has gotten very, very expensive. And the the question you have to ask yourself is if you look at how the rich world works, uh, you know, everyone has devalued at some point. The yen went from you know, 80, low, less than 80 to 125. Yen has gone from 160 down to 1. Sterling has gone from 210 to well, 126, 7. Uh, Korean won did a very similar thing in 08, went from 800 to 1600. And so you, you got this question of, you know, if everyone else can devalue, why can't China devalue, right? Uh, and the reason why is because they've chosen not to. That's been their policy. They want to have a strong, stable currency. The problem is, is that, uh, look, you know, one of the things I try and do is when I travel, I try to get an idea of where is cheap and where is expensive. And it always more, it makes more sense to short will be bearish on a currency that's expensive than a currency that's cheap. With China, so if you go like the two most expensive places uh, these days for me, is one is Hong Kong. The other one's probably San Francisco. Uh, and so both of those are reflective of where the, the, the industries or the economies of both those places are. Um, and so, yeah, I would look to see at some point China says, well, look, you know, if you're changing the trade rules, we're going to change the currency rules. The only issue with that is with something like the Trump administration, Navarro and all those guys, if China suddenly devalues, I can't help but feel that the Trump uh, administration goes, fine, tariffs to 50% or something like that. Um, and then, but then you get a cascading bear market. Uh, you know, so we're at a very tricky point. So like I said, the weird sort of classic macro indicators are divergingly radically from what equities are doing. Um, And that does happen sometimes. Usually the macro indicators are right. Uh, The the best example I can think of is commodities back in 08, which is a long time ago for most people. Uh, But uh, commodities went uh, parabolic in the first half of 08. Yeah, As we're heading into a recession. I think August was the peak in oil, I think. Uh, yeah. It even like happened that. a month and a half later. Yeah. And then suddenly, and it was very weird, it didn't make a lot of sense. And then suddenly it broke in a way. And that's typically how markets work. They force everyone into an asset at exactly the wrong time. And then liquidity just disappears and you're stuck in it. So the weirdest thing about 08 is uh, through the first half of 08, there were a lot of emerging market sort of hedge funds that are up 20%. 10 to 15, especially the Russia-type guys, they end up being down 50 by the end of the year as sort of reality kicked in. And for China, wouldn't they kind of think that... Um, I mean, it seems that what they've actually been doing is that 
um, they've let the currency drift um, lower with the, the tariffs. So in 2018, tariffs came, currency moved um, yeah. towards seven, kind of offset um, the tariffs. And then again, this time around, a little bit less powerful a move. Wouldn't it be for, for them maybe more sensible to say, look, what we're going to do is we'll, we'll let our currency go in response to aggression rather than be the aggressor? Because nowadays they're sort of importing more and more oil, so they're becoming more of an importer than an exporter necessarily. Yeah. So a stable currency would be good for that because it reduces or doesn't. It keeps a lid on inflation, which is one of the big bugbears. Yeah. And eventually, in a normal world, they'd probably want to open up the capital account and get foreign direct investment to buy the bonds and therefore fund the deficits, US style. Is, isn't it sort of that they, they would probably like to keep the stability? So they want to kind of keep the internal stability. But by doing that, it creates this externality, which we're seeing you know, in Australia and Germany, where the, the real, real fear here is that they've changed the direction of their liquidity, they've changed the direction of their growth. And the world hasn't really caught on to what they're doing yet. And they're still thinking it's going to be, you know, or we were thinking until a few months ago that it was going to be a um, kind of China saves the day and the PBOC provides the liquidity. Yeah. Look, uh, I mean, the PBOC is quite transparent. I mean, uh, you know, while we look at, you know, you keep calling, calling the dollar RMB exchange rate, but the RMB looks at a basket of trade partners. Um, and so the big issue for China has been, you know, places like Europe and Japan have constantly tried to keep their exchange rate as weak as possible. And the RMB drifted, drifted up versus the dollar when the euro and the yen were drifting up against the dollar as well, which makes sense to me. Uh, and you did see for a while Asian currencies as well were drifting higher versus the dollar. Intellectually, sort of makes sense to me. The you know, US is running like a 4% fiscal deficit at the top of its equity and employment cycle. So if you normalize those numbers, you're getting to like a 7 8% deficit, which is wildly high and so you've got this weird sort of jenga tower type thing where europe and japan keep going more negative with their interest rates to keep their currencies weak versus the dollar because that's the only way they can generate growth but the problem with that is that that puts more pressure on the renminbi to devalue which would then really crack open the entire egg that makes sense. And so the renminbi is really the fulcrum around which everything is, is moving at the moment. And so we sort of keep a close eye on, on that. People talk about the world of derivatives and the, the whole of the sort of um, credit space, this enormous pile, as being the sort of nuclear weapons. It's like, well, we know they're there. We know that Russia has nuclear weapons in America. We're not going to press the button. And central banks, I think, have got into that mode where they don't want the button to be pressed, so they provide that liquidity. And I think it goes, you're talking about the PBOC providing liquidity in global banks, papering over the cracks of China. Yeah. For some of these reasons, you, know, you see China weakening. And maybe one of the big questions, and it's something you've talked about, which is the central banks, can they um, prevent the button from being pressed? A new paradigm. Yeah. Or are we kind of looking the wrong way and it's still going to happen? Actually, liquidity, unendless liquidity actually creates that Minsky moment. So there's two ways, there's two different ways of coming out. So I'll come out the PBOC way. Um, so what's intriguing with the PBOC, PBOC is, uh, so you've started to see some credit issues. Uh, some are transparent, some are untransparent. Um, so the untransparent ones have to rely on third parties. Uh, the transparent ones are things like highball rates are starting to move by, up against LIBOR rates, and there are benign reasons to why that is, big IPO in Hong Kong. There's other less benign reasons, which is, uh, Hong Kong dollar is no longer perceived as a safe haven for Chinese money. Uh, and, you know, so, you know, there's that stress. So normally high, high ball very rarely moves above LIBOR. 
Uh, when that has, has been 08 and 98. So two liquidity issue type moments. So that's a negative signal. Uh, the other thing in China is that uh, they did have to take over a small regional bank a couple of years, a couple of months ago, a month ago. And again, now this is where I don't get access to this data. I have to look at other people's uh, work. Um, but what you're seeing there is because there's been some shenanigans going on with the corporate bond market in China, uh, it's created a lot of mistrust in high, high yield credit in China. So credit spreads in China are widening. Um, which matches up with what we're seeing out of cash steel margins. And what we're starting to see in sort of forward points for the renminbi uh, are starting to inflect lower. So since 2016, when they put in good policy, uh, the renminbi looked to be appreciating against the dollar. It did have some huge moves against the dollar. That's now beginning to inflect. You combine that with a high ball numbers, uh, and you look at then things like Korean won, Aussie dollar, Taiwan dollar, uh, the market is starting to look at renminbi weakness. And it has been curious to me is that even as US interest rate expectations have come down, you haven't really seen a, a strong move higher in the renminbi, if anything, probably a bit weaker. Um, so the signals there are all very negative. And, and you mentioned there, you know, the, you know, the key bit being the renminbi. What's, what's the sort of, you know, everyone's talking at the moment about is a recession due over what time frame? So I guess the key question here is, time frame for that, what will be the consequences? Because when yep. they did a mini deval in 2015, it wasn't actually good for China and it wasn't good for the rest of the world. It yep. was quite a, a, a bad environment. How, what sort of time frame do you have for this? And if you're playing it, would you play it through Chinese assets or do you look at things like Korea, Australia and the sort of the most um, correlated economies to effectively macro China? What's, what's your timing and what's your play on that? It's a very tricky issue. Uh, I certainly think there's a lot of potentially very bad debt in China. There's certainly been a number of defaults already. You know, like the problem is it's not a super transparent market, uh, but the similarities like a career in the mid nineties are quite high. So Korea, this is, I know, this is ancient history and a niche market for most people, but because it, it's so similar to the Chinese model, I like looking at. So Korea before the Asian financial crisis had like 10 different car companies. Some of them were small. There's like a Hyundai car company and Sassyong, which still exists, but merged. You have Kia, Hyundai, uh, a bunch of other guys. Um, and then basically, these days only have one. There's Hyundai and Kia, but Kia is a subsidiary to Hyundai. So if we look at like the electronic, uh, electric vehicle market, right, which China is a leader at, there was this famous relative, the one that people might know is NIO, which is listed on New York Stock Exchange. Stock's down 70%. There are 25 electric vehicle companies in China, right? Whereas most people say Tesla in the West. And it just sort of, you know, you think, hmm, interesting. Neo would have been the best because it managed to get listed in New York and it's been a disaster. And you've had this sort of car market slowing. So you know there's going to be some bad debt out there somewhere. So all the signs remind me of like the problems that came out of Korea. Um, and what you're also starting to see a little bit is that um, Chinese bond yields are not following global bond yields lower, but Chinese renminbi is not going up. And so that historically, I found that a very bearish signal in that if you are getting a widening spread versus other currencies and it's not moving your currency higher, that's closer to a EM crisis type issue. So you think this is going to blow any time, basically? Yeah, I mean, the logic of it is 
logic is both very simple but extremely problematic. Uh, so I think, you know, as we mentioned earlier, that you have very limited liquidity in the, in the underlying assets um, and then huge liquidity in, in the option assets uh, or a derivative market. Uh, and then when we look at how markets generally traded now, the sort of big active investors uh, have very little market share and declining marginal market share and passive and ETFs. And when I look at how large allocators hedge these days, they put more and more money into their trend followers. Uh, so trend following funds did reasonably well in 08. Been a disaster since, but it did well in 08. Um, and it sort of comes back to this idea that big allocators, if a market goes up and up and up forever, they need something that will track that. So uh, a trend follower gives them both of those options. So it, it manages the risk as they perceive it. The problem is, is that when you combine those three things I've just told you, low liquidity, huge derivative notionals that don't match up to that liquidity, and then the delta in markets being by trend followers. And I, it sounds like when you had that Sokchen guy and, who, and he would know uh, about trigger points. When you combine all those different pitches together, what that suggests to me, uh, together with issues in China, is that you get a, a, a gap in the market. That is, so one day we all go home on Friday and over the weekend the Chinese go, hey, that's it, might as well, we're going to rip the Band-Aid off and we come in and the renminbi is at nine, right? And equities then open up down 15 on a gap, right? And then, of course, in vol, something goes down at 40 or something like that. The problem then is that this huge amount of derivatives that suddenly get knocked in and they're looking for liquidity. Uh, and one thing I've also seen is that the, uh, the high-frequency traders that provide most of the liquidity, they pull their bids on vol spikes because they're not programmed to think. They're just programmed to react to market prices. So when they see vol go low, bids get tighter. When vol goes high, they pull the bids. And this has been the, the problem. The problem of that view is that what that means is you go one way to pull all the CTAs long and then you go back the other way in a gap. Uh, and yeah, the problem of that type of market is that no one makes money. So you, you, you'll make money all the way up and then you lose it in one go. And if you're short all the way, you, you're shorting before it, you lose money and then you make money in a, in a blast. And unfortunately, of course, the preference for most investors these days is for low vol strategies, uh, which, you know, you know, to try and capture that move requires you to take on vol. So the amount of, that's why you see this constant reduction in short interest in the market. Um, but yeah, from my perspective, you know, the setup looks perfect. It sounds like, unlike in previous events, there's been a, the clear sequencing. So if you take 2008, it started in 2006, lots of warnings in 07. Yep. And in some ways, it was a surprise at how big it got. But this time around, it sounds like we won't get, there was a problem there, followed by a problem here. It might just be one of those days where the catalyst is China and it just goes. And you therefore got to accept there's going to be a cost of carry in having positions on. But it might be tomorrow. It might be two weeks, two months. 
but you've got to have the positions on. Well, I mean, that was the same in 07, is that the cost of carrier was very high, and that's why there was very little big money in it. Uh, it's like, a, like always to my wife when we went, you know, when she reads a big short or watches a movie, it would have been a better story if they showed uh, all the guys that blew up from 2003 onwards on that trade. You know, first, it would have been a much more appropriate story. Uh, yeah, so from my perspective, though, what, what I found is that uh, from that period and also earlier periods is that currencies tend to give you a very good tell because it's actually central banks can't control currencies directly. They can influence it via interest rates. If people think things are bad, you know, uh, you know they're going to they're gonna come back. So to put you on the spot, to sort of round it off, your, your view and part of your view is that you believe that the Renimbi will move through seven, they will do something, and this will trigger a whole series of chain reactions. Is that going to happen before the end of this year? I think the, the question you always ask yourself is when do you start positioning for that type of uh, move? Um, so what I would say is if you look at some of the directly related uh, uh, equities to that type of uh, issue, they're already beginning to move. Um, and some of the currencies like the Korean won has been weakening. Uh, and the other sort of lead indicators on such a outcome would be, for example, long dead bond yields falling. That makes sense. So all those things are happening already. So in my view, you know, you should you be you could have started to position for that uh, late last year potentially. Although to be fair, the Korean War and that sort of thing didn't happen until this year. Um, but when you look at the sort of dichotomy between, like I said, macro indicators and what equities are doing, uh, the macro indicators are saying that you know get positioned for it now. Uh, so. Yeah, but when that happens is a different, you know, it's like uh, if you looked at, you know, back in the financial crisis, you know, know, even in like 2003-04, there was this mystery of why long-dated bond yields weren't higher, right? You remember the curve uh, inverted quite early and none of the big indicators, none of the big commentators had any strong particular view why that was. It just did, right? And then it became obvious. And uh, what I've learned is typically uh, bond markets and macro markets are right, but sometimes there's a big lag between what they're indicating and actually happening. So time to put the hats on, the tin hats on and get ready. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) A happy look at a pessimistic view. Well, thank you very much again, Russell, for joining us on Real Vision. Thanks very much for those views. And uh, I probably should say, I hope it doesn't turn out to be true. Me too. (laughs) Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks to you. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.